Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey there. We've got a real diverse show for you today. First, you'll hear about nuclear technologies. Then there's a story about using drones to make ecological measurements. Then you'll hear about how dogs have helped our own evolution. And we'll finish with a nice story about vaccine design and development. So let's get started. Here's longtime Bench Talk contributor, Professor J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. Scott here. In 1945, America initiated what was originally referred to as the Atomic Age when it detonated its first atomic bomb. Since then, the phrase has morphed into the Nuclear Age, perhaps heralded by the detonation of the first hydrogen bomb. Through the 50s and into the 60s, bomb drills were conducted in schools as a precaution in case we were ever attacked by nuclear weapons. The fear of those earlier days persists today, and there are many that equate nuclear energy with nuclear destruction. But more peaceful uses of atomic and nuclear energy have evolved. Radioisotopes, radioactive versions of neutral atoms, have been used in agriculture. These isotopes, or the radiation given off by them, such as gamma rays, have found their uses. Plant mutation breeding, a process of exposing seeds or cuttings of a given plant to gamma rays to cause mutations, can enhance the natural process of spontaneous genetic mutation, which, in turn, produce varieties of plants that increase crop production, helping in achieving food security and improved nutrition in large parts of Asia. Insect control is another area where radioactive isotopes, or gamma rays, they emit have been used. Radiation can control insect populations. Vast populations of insects sterilized via radiation can be released into areas where control would be beneficial. Though these insects are sterile, they are still competitive sexually, producing no offspring. This process was developed in the United States over 60 years ago, and has now expanded to six continents around the world, successfully controlling a large number of insects considered to be pests, such as mosquitoes, various fruit fly species, tsetse flies to name a few. Radioactive isotopes find their way into consumer products as well, such as smoke detectors, watches, and clocks. Even some non-stick materials use natural properties of radioisotopes in their design. In the medical field, there are quite a few uses of radioisotopes and radiation. Diagnostic techniques use, for example, short-lived radioisotopes as tracers within the human body. Certain therapies used to treat some cancers use radioactive isotopes and gamma radiation emitted from specific radioisotopes, such as cobalt-60, in the attempt to control or even eradicate some of these issues. Of course, the most commonly thought of use of nuclear energy is in the form of nuclear power plants. These plants generally use radioisotopes of uranium. These isotopes are unstable and will fracture or fission into two smaller isotopes of the nuclei of smaller atoms. 
In the process, heat is released to essentially create the steam that turns generators to make electricity. One of the chief concerns of such a process would be those isotopes created in the fission process. In many instances, one or both isotopes will themselves be radioactive. When these byproducts are removed, they need to be safely stored for that time which allows their radiation levels to be considered safe. This can be tens, hundreds, thousands of years or even more depending on the isotopes created. And no one wants them stored in their backyard. The alternative to fission is nuclear fusion. In principle, one starts with hydrogen nuclei, or more likely isotopes of hydrogen nuclei. These are fused together through a sequence of steps to build up a helium nucleus and release heat. The heat is used to make steam that turns the generators to make electricity. In principle, the byproduct, helium, is inert and not radioactive. As simple as the process is, it requires extremely high temperatures, temperatures that most materials from which a reactor could be built cannot withstand. To date, the successful application of nuclear fusion here on Earth, if you want to call it successful, have been those hydrogen bombs I mentioned earlier. In those cases, containing and controlling the reaction is not as important, nor is the breakdown of materials at high temperature. But if nuclear fusion is to help in the process of removing our dependence on fossil fuels, controls must be found. There have been more than a few proposed and built designs for doing this. In all cases where fusion was achieved, the time period was short, too short to make this a serious consumer energy production process. And this work has had a long history, going back to the 1940s and 50s. Then, as now, magnetic confinement of the plasma created in the process has been understood to be the key, but building up those magnetic fields has only recently been approaching achievement. With these successes, even though long-term and thus commercially usable fusion has not been maintained, there appeared in the March issue of Physics Today an article touting the need for a public-private effort to build a pilot fusion power plant. Because of the steep costs, much fusion research has been carried out by university consortiums using money from public sources like the Department of Energy in the U.S. or in giant internationally funded programs such as ITER, whose name means the way in Latin. 35 nations are collaborating to build this world's largest tokamak, a magnetic fusion device designed to prove the feasibility of fusion as a large-scale energy source. This paper proposes the need for a collaborative effort between the Department of Energy and the private sector to build a fusion pilot plant that would begin operation sometime in the mid to late 2030s. This is roughly the time that ITER may have its first successful deuterium-tritium fusion test. The idea is to learn from the work ITER has done and put U.S. energy companies in a position to see what the scale-up to nuclear fusion-based electricity-producing plants could be, including cost of productions of such plants. The point of the paper is to put the U.S. in a position to play a major role and lead in the development of the technology to harness fusion. There is quite a bit in the paper that goes into what needs to be achieved both with ITER and with building such a plant here in the U.S. for the purpose of demonstrating viability. And the list is quite substantial in terms of the hoops that will need to be jumped through, many of them technical challenges that we are only now coming to grips with and becoming capable of overcoming. 
but the light at the end of the tunnel, if successful, would be an alternative energy production source that further moves us away from relying on fossil fuels and the increase in climate change gases this is producing. Maybe it will be nothing more than a pipe dream. Only time will tell. That was J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks, Scott. Now let's hear from Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. She recently interviewed Olivia Statton, who's an undergraduate at Northern Kentucky University. Olivia has been doing research at NKU, and a presentation she gave recently has won an award. Her research presentation was called Traditional Transect versus Drone Imaging Methods for Determining Population Size in Milkweed. So let's hear from Amanda Fuller and Olivia Statton. This is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science. I'm interviewing student competition winners from our annual meeting this November 2020. And today I'm talking to Olivia Staten from Northern Kentucky University. Olivia was a winner in our ecology section. Hi, Olivia. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us on Bench Talk. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, so I'm currently a student at NKU and my major's in biology. So I was working with Dr. Robertson and we looked at different restored prairies in the greater Cincinnati area. And so what we did is compared data that was taken from 2018 and 2019 in the summertime, where researchers had gone out and taken um, data with manual transect methods. And what we did is took a drone this summer and took photographs of the fields. And so we sampled from milkweed that way and we compared the methods and to see kind of if one was better than the other or if they're equivalent. How much faster do you think it is to do this sort of data collection with a drone versus doing it with a transect in the field? So it depends on how much milkweed there is. Some of them could take one to three days manually, and then other sites where there could be up to 30,000 milkweed plants would take up to three weeks even. So it was a lot quicker using the drone to survey. Wow. So that drone flies over for some short period of time. How long does it take, do you think? I think it's between an hour and two hours. And so the drone is flying over pretty close to the plants. Like how high is it off the ground? So Dr. Robertson did more of the, she was the one who was responsible for the drone photographs. So I kind of give you an exact height. I know that she did have to take them several different times in case we pulled the picture into the program and it ended up being blurry or if there was complications due to weather. So sometimes we did have to take them a few times, but she knows more about the specifications on how that went. <laughs> yeah, and actually I'm glad you mentioned those photographs because folks who want to follow along can go to our website and see the images in your presentation. Um, we're going to try to describe a little bit of that on the radio, but for folks who want to see them, our program from the annual meeting is at kyscience.org, and you can look at Olivia Staten's presentation there, of course, because the meeting was virtual, everything was uploaded, and so people can see those pictures. And I wonder if you could just describe a little bit what that looks like when you're looking at the actual the images that come from the drone. What are you, what are you seeing there? Sure. So after the, the drone takes the photographs, it takes hundreds of photographs and it puts it together um, in the software that we used into one ortho mosaic, it's called. And so it just is an aerial image of the entire field. And 
because of the the file is so large, it was hard to zoom in and get everything to be perfectly clear. So they kind of were blurry once you zoomed into looking at one plant. But you get a really good aerial view of all of the milkweed plants individually. And we looked at them a little bit later in the season. And so they were in bloom and we could tell them more easily from the other plants because of the flowers and the shape and the kind of the coloring. So it was an easy way to see the milkweed and it was quicker than walking around and taking the, the data manually. Yeah, I was surprised to hear you say that in your presentation that it's easier to find them with a drone than finding them in the transects when you're there in person. Exactly. And they have the common milkweed has a distinct a kind of a cross shape and the leaves are kind of a thicker shape than a lot of other plants. So they're kind of hard to miss. And it, you would think that it would be easy to mix them up with some other ones, but they were really distinct. So that helped a lot. And they were planted presumably in these areas where you're studying because they're restored prairie plantings. So you yes. knew that they were there. Exactly. So we have records of the kind of the seed mixes and the management practices in those fields. And so in the future, we would like to kind of look at more aspects of what affects the milkweed, like in terms of how they were planted and what practices they use to maintain the field and maybe even look at soil and water qualities as well. So that would be something to continue to look at. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you taking all the fun out of it for field ecologists that we're not going to be able to get to go out in the field and get chiggers and <laughs> get stung by bees and all of this? <laughs> yeah, so this is definitely just a process that we're starting out with. So there's lots more to be done. So <laughs> sure, there's plenty more field research. <laughs> okay, that, that's good, because I think the field ecologists secretly enjoy that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, what are your future plans? What do you see with either the future of this technology or your career in the future? Yeah, so hopefully we get to continue to work with the drone and figure out how we want our process to go exactly. Um, in terms of what I would like to do with my career plans, I'm studying biology at NKU, um, but I'm really interested in looking at master's degree programs. And I like to study uh, ecology a lot. So I'm looking at degrees in ecology, evolution, and conservation, possibly. So those are my next career goals. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I think those fields are going to be changing dramatically in the future because of technologies like this one, probably. Definitely. But um, so good luck to you. I'm so glad you came on to talk to us. This is really exciting research. And yeah. thanks for joining us on Bench Talk. Thank you. That was undergraduate researcher Olivia Statton of NKU being interviewed by our latest Bench Talk team member, Amanda Fuller of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Thanks, Amanda, and congratulations, Olivia. Now, let's hear a cool story from Earth Date about dogs. Here's why dogs might truly be our best friends forever. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Previously, we talked about how early humans outcompeted Neanderthals. One big reason for their success might be sitting right next to you. I'm talking about dogs. When humans arrived in Europe, they were at the top of the food chain, along with Neanderthals, big cats, bears, and wolves. Archaeological records suggest that humans soon began to domesticate wolves, which quickly evolved into proto-dogs and joined the hunt. The dogs did what they did best, chasing large prey over distance, tiring, and cornering them. Man stepped in with spears and arrows to close the deal, sparing dogs the dangerous part of the kill. Then they shared the meat. Butchering sites for large animals like mammoth would have attracted other carnivores. 
Scientists believe early dogs also help keep scavengers away. Fossilized remains show early dogs were similar to huskies, but bigger. The skeletons show healed broken bones, suggesting a rough hunting life, but also care afterward. By contrast, Neanderthal sites show no evidence of a partnership with dogs. Humans and dogs became such a dominant hunting force, researchers believe, that they simultaneously eliminated large prey and outcompeted not just Neanderthals, but most other large predators. So the next time you see a dog, give them a big thank you belly rub. They were essential to human success, and with that, they guaranteed their own and a friendship lasting 50,000 years. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org. Thanks to EarthDate for contributing that story. And now, vaccines. Here is Dr. E.U. Liana Probescu, a pharmacologist working at the Barnstable Brown Diabetes Research Center at the University of Kentucky. The title of Dr. Probescu's story is How Vaccines Are Designed, Developed, and Authorized for Human Use. Ilana specifically recorded this piece as part of the World Health Organization's World Immunization Week, which actually occurred during the last week of April. But hey, maybe every week should be World Immunization Week, don't you think? Well, here's Dr. Probescu. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Juliana Popescu. I am basically a pharmacist specialized in pharmacology, which is the science of drugs and their effect on living systems. Because in the last week of April, we celebrate the World Immunization Week, I'll be telling you the vaccine story. Everybody heard about vaccines, but what exactly are they? How are they created, manufactured, tested for their quality and safety, and then released on the market? Today, I'll try to explain to you several of these aspects. The story of vaccines began at the end of the 18th century. The term vaccine was coined by the British doctor Edward Jenner, who noticed the resemblance of human smallpox with cowpox, an infectious disease of cows caused by a virus related to the so-called vaccinia virus. Also, an important observation of Dr. Jenner was that the farmers who were infected with cowpox from their cows were somehow protected and didn't develop human smallpox once exposed to this infection. From here, the idea that previous exposure to a virus can protect our body against a new infection or to another related infection, which is in fact the base of what we called naturally acquired immunity. Natural exposure of our bodies to infectious viruses and bacteria that we name pathogens makes that our immune system reacts almost concomitantly in two ways. First, it produces antibodies to neutralize the pathogen. And secondly, it activates specific immune killer cells in our body to kill the infected cells and, importantly, to memorize the imprint of that specific pathogen. So, if the next time that pathogen will infect again our body, our immune system will recognize it based on this imprint memory and will kill it. The same principle in the case of vaccines. In fact, vaccines mimic the natural infection with the pathogen and trick our immune system, making it to believe that a real infection occurs 
So it will react exactly in the two ways I just told you about. Thus, it will be ready and will kill the pathogen if it will infect again. But how vaccine can do that? The vaccine must show to our immune system the enemy, the antigen, to make it react. Because in the 18th century, nobody knew the structure of viruses and bacteria. Genetics and genetic engineering were to develop only in the second half of the 20th century. The enemy antigen utilized in the first manufactured vaccines was the live pathogen itself, but attenuated or killed. So it couldn't produce the disease, but was strong enough to wake up the immune response of the body. We say that the pathogen still had immunogen capacity. This approach, named the classing approach, was used to develop the first vaccines for smallpox, rabies, or typhoid, cholera, and plague in the 19th century, and is still used today. The vaccines for tuberculosis, yellow fever, and flu were also developed by this strategy. Well, the attenuation on or inactivation of the pathogen was initially done by heat or oxygen, later on by cereal culture and specific grow media or eggs or exposure to chemicals, the later one being also used in our days. Several examples are the vaccines for measles, rubella, mumps, polio, and varicella. These vaccines trigger, in general, a very strong response of the human system, and those containing live attenuated pathogen can put safety concerns. The inactivation of the pathogen may also induce an improper modification of a key component of the virus, a protein, for instance, so that the antibodies formed will not be enough specific to kill the microbe. Several COVID-19 vaccines developed by China, India, Turkey, Russia, or Japan are also based or on inactivated or killed SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Well, another option in the design of vaccines is to use only portions of the virus or bacteria that also can induce an immune response. For instance, some vaccines were created based on the observation that sugar-like molecules called polysaccharides forming the external mantle of several pathogens are very efficient to induce protective antibodies in our bodies. This approach is much safer because it doesn't use the whole pathogen, but involves technical challenges like the isolation and purification of that specific part of the pathogen, which can be, as I said, polysaccharides, a protein of the virus, a toxin, for instance, or a combination of both. Diphtheria, Anthrax and tetanus vaccines, or the vaccines for meningitis, hepatitis A and B, and for the flu, are based on this strategy. The revolution of genetic engineering toward the end of the 20th century has enhanced the possibilities of obtaining more effective vaccines. Once the scientists were able to decipher the genetic code and structure of viruses and bacteria, everything became easier and more reliable. For instance, instead of using the real protein isolated from the microbe itself, it was possible to obtain the same protein artificially by using yeast, animal cells, or insect cells as incubators to produce large quantities of protein. 
hepatitis B, cholera, or human papilloma virus vaccines were obtained by this strategy. This approach also allowed surpassing the problems of possible allergies posed by the previous use of chicken eggs to obtain the vaccines for flu, for instance. In the case of COVID-19, a bunch of vaccines was designed based on recombinant spike protein or small fragments of it. Along with these traditional design strategies, other platforms have been developed over the past few decades. For instance, the Ebola vaccine created in 2019 and the approved COVID-19 vaccines from AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson and Sputnik were based on a viral vector technology. The principle is the following. A virus, different from the SARS-CoV-2, that can be an adenovirus infecting humans or the chimpanzees, is first modified in the lab, so that is no longer able to multiply in the human cells of the vaccinated person. Then, the genetic material that makes it possible to produce the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus is inserted in this modified virus, so the result, called a viral vector, is harmless, non-replicative, but carries the information to synthesize the spike protein by the host human cells, which will produce thereafter antibodies against the spike protein. The messenger RNA strategies, called the mRNA, which was recently used by Pfizer and Moderna to produce vaccines against SARS-CoV-2, is unknown to the public, but not to researchers. It is being used in the last 10 years to develop vaccines for cancer and several infectious diseases like AIDS, Ebola, or Zika, for which the traditional methods were not effective. The advantage of the mRNA vaccines is that they are easy to develop on a large scale, so they can be used in rapidly growing pandemics such as COVID-19. The principle is somehow similar to that of the viral vectors. The portion of the viral RNA that contains the information for the spike protein is isolated and then transformed in vitro until multiple strands of messenger RNA are obtained that will be packed in protective envelopes made from several types of fats called liposomes. Envelopes protect the mRNA molecules and help them to enter the human cells upon vaccination. Well, a disadvantage of this type of vaccine is that mRNA is very unstable at room temperature, from where the need to transport and store these vaccines at temperature below 4 degrees Celsius in the refrigerator or for long periods at minus 80 degrees Celsius. The mRNA vaccines cannot, in any case, induce the COVID-19 infection because their mRNA contains only the information for making the, to make the protein the spike protein of the virus. The machinery for making a whole replicating and harmful SARS-CoV-2 virus being absent. Also, the mRNA cannot integrate within our genes to modify them because it cannot pass the envelopes of cellular nuclei where our genes are stored. In addition, mRNAs have a very short lifespan in our cells and are degraded very quickly once the spike protein is made by our cell's machinery. Besides the antigen, the active principle of the vaccines that generate the immune response, vaccines contain 
other ingredients to keep the vaccine safe and effective. In the fabrication process, they are called excipients. But about their specific use in the development and fabrication process of vaccines and the role they play as potential inducers of the immediate hypersensitivity reactions of vaccines in the next episode. That was Dr. E. Juliana Probescu, pharmacologist at the University of Kentucky. Thank you, E. Juliana, and you're welcome to contribute more biomedical stories anytime. You've been listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next week.